welcome to the Low-Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology and the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. We were in the middle of talking about, about the Amarna period because I got all excited about it and then uh, the time ended. Uh, just to recap that even though you can't read that, the Amarna period um, there you go, uh, is a kind of an aberration or an unusual side note to the timeline of Egyptian history because it really only lasted a generation or so. But basically, um, as uh, Akhenaten um, put the god Aten above all other gods uh, as the principal deity, uh, he kind of pissed off the wrong people. Uh, sorry for using such blue language, uh, but he, uh, he had moved, the, remember, recall he had moved the capital from Amarna, uh, excuse me, to Amarna from Thebes. Uh, he had built a new town, he said this is where it's going to be, moved a lot of people, the whole apparatus of government, not super popular. Uh, it, it was obviously abandoned afterwards and remains in great um, preservation because nobody's been living there, you can still see a lot of the outlines of the buildings. Note again the edge of agriculture here. I'm going to come back to that again later. Um, so yeah, they have great preservation of <clears throat> Tel Al-Amarna, so they were able to reconstruct what the place actually looked like quite quite well. Um, so yeah, uh, just to recap also, uh, Akhenaten was the father of Tutankhamun, whose, first, whose actual earlier name was Tutankhamun one who venerates Aten, and then after his father died, the royal courtiers pushed him to revert to the old ways, and um, Amun was a uh, pretty prominent deity uh, before this time, and so he changed his name to Tutankhamun, which is uh, one who venerates Amun. Uh, again, Nefertiti was his mother. Right, okay. So, um, died as a young boy. Um, there's some debate about how he died. <clears throat> uh, da, 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 da. Yeah, the uh, really well-preserved, it's not that he was a particularly wealthy boy king or king uh, that was buried, it's just that there was great preservation. Uh, it was so well-preserved, in fact, that it was, seems to have been hermetically sealed through whatever tight seals they made, not that they were had any idea about the, uh, the idea of hermetic sealing. Um, but it was so well-sealed that when they opened the door, they could hear like wood and other things start to creak and crack as they were exposed to fresh modern air. So uh, pretty amazing. Um, another exciting part about uh, Amarna is the Amarna letters, which are, as Egypt was a very powerful international force of the time, the Amarna letters were a series of international, it's like the equivalent of like when WikiLeaks published all those cables from the State Department, and we could see behind the scenes what the State Department was saying 
uh, to and from other countries. That's basically what the Amarna letters are. They are in Egypt, but they are written in Akkadian on tablets from, that look just like the ones from the Middle East because that was the lingua franca. That was the language of international diplomacy. And so they were sending these things back and forth. Uh, they were basically um, international relations records uh, from the Egyptian period. So we know how deeply the, uh, the Egyptians and the others were interacting. And they're really fascinating reading. A lot of it's formulaic, like, oh, great king of the so-and-so, lord of the blah, 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 da, 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 da. My master, the king of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, blah, blah, blah. It's like all this formulaic crap. But then there is also stuff like saying like, hey, where are the shipments of silver that you promised us? We wed you one of our royal daughters uh, to firm up this relationship, and now we're not seeing the silver or what gives, things like that. It's pretty fun. Um, <coughs> near the end of the New Kingdom, we slide into uh, the uh, Ramsiday Egypt or uh, Ramsiday period, which is uh, when order has been restored by, mm, I guess, warrior pharaohs. Um, they move the capital from the south back to Memphis, which is near modern-day Cairo and had been the capital during the Old Kingdom. Um, there's an increased emphasis on military action which is kind of true of the New Kingdom in general, but uh, especially during um, uh, the Ramsidib period. Um, the neat thing about Egypt is, remember I've talked about it being very xenophobic and kind of insular and like very Egypt-centric, uh, you know, like make America great again. That would be a slogan that they would really cotton to, make Egypt great again. They would love that. that like the ancient Egyptians would be like, yeah, that's... That's the slogan, not that it has anything to do with anything. Um, but uh, at this time, because they were such a large international power, a lot of people were wanting to come to and from Egypt. And so over time, Egypt had become a more cosmopolitan society. Um, and they had people coming from Syria, Palestine area, the Mediterranean, Libya, and to the south, like Ethiopia and Nubia. So they had all these... Mm, uh, minorities, basically, uh, living within uh, the country. Um, at this time, they also had a famous war with, let's see, do I have, do I have a picture of the Sea People? Yeah. They had a war with the Sea People. We don't know who these are. S-E-A, as in Sea People. Um, we don't know exactly who they were. They might have been Minoans. Uh, Minoans were the uh, Greek-speaking people on Crete that uh, were destroyed probably due to an earthquake and tidal wave. Um, so it may be that they had uh, a war with them. Maybe they're Phoenician-related. It's hard. We don't really know, but we do know that there was a large flotilla um, that came in and did, excuse me, battle with with the Egyptians. Uh, pretty prominent. Um, uh, it's during this time that the uh, Valley of the Kings really gets um, really gets going. Even though the capital was moved to Memphis, they revamped Thebes as kind of a um, 
Mm, still a spiritual center, even if it wasn't the civic center anymore. It was certainly a spiritual center, and a lot of people were buried there. Um, and <clears throat> you can see a lot of small uh, but very artistic uh, interiors of these tombs rather than the big, remember, pyramids have been out of style for quite a long time. Okay. Large building projects. Uh, this is one of the Ramses. Um, <clears throat> near the end of the um, of the period, we see a series of weak pharaohs, um, and they kind of, as they were weak, they allowed more powerful officials and others to take over more prominent roles. And slowly over time, the office of the pharaoh eroded, um, and, it, and natural na uh, national unity broke down. And you can see here in this, uh, in this map, during the Third Intermediate Period, there are different uh, kind of states. These are bigger than gnomes, but they are larger, or they're, they're not the entire kingdom, obviously, but it breaks down to about a dozen different regions that uh, became semi-autonomous in yet another Third Intermediate Period. I know it's kind of repetitive to see what happens over time, uh, but it's interesting that the pattern does repeat about every uh, they last as a unified kingdom for about 500 years and then collapse again. And then things get interesting because up until this time, they've been able to largely stay. Ah, I hope you haven't written too much. Sorry. Um, I do want to. OK. I do want to talk uh, briefly. Sorry to backtrack. I apologize. Um, I do want to talk a little bit more about Valley of the Kings just because it's a major archaeological. Not that, again, it's a major archaeological area because it is tombs of very fancy people. And that is uh, something that has interested archaeologists for a long time um, to the detriment of looking at you know, normal, everyday person's houses. Which, to me, is more interesting. You know, how did, you know, right, much of archaeology is looking at the 1% Whereas, you know, the 99% is the normal people or the rest of the people, um, they get kind of short shrift. Um, the, um, okay, I said, da, da, da. Um, I will note that uh, Tutankhamun's tomb, remember, was uh, a little unusual because it was so well preserved. Um, like I said, mentioned a little bit before, even though all these temples and all these tombs were here, um, the people that built them knew they were there, so they only had to wait long enough that people would forget or there wouldn't be guards and they could go back and rob them. Uh, it was lucky that Tutankhamun's tomb was not. Um, tombs were cut into the living rock. Um, they were not built up from nothing. They were uh, cut into the stone, um, and they often had temples and other mar uh, things marking the doorways. Um, so yeah, you can see those here. Um, Okay, that's all I want to mention. All right, now on, back to the uh, Mediterranean period. Sorry for that interruption. Uh, after, do, do, do. Um, oh, I should, one last thing. Sorry, golly. One last thing about the Third Intermediate Period. Um, some of the pharaohs, there were like competing pharaohs. Some of them were actually ethnic, ethnic minorities would be what we would call them, but like Libyans. Uh, some Libyans who had been a very prominent um, ethnic uh, group in Egypt actually became pharaohs, and southern Nubians and others. Uh, 
there were a series of pharaohs that were, uh, I guess, you know, if it was a modern headline, it would be like, you know, first Libyan pharaoh. Uh, just like, you know, first black president or something is kind of a big deal historically. Same thing would have been true um, in Egypt, and whether or not that was seen as positive or negative by the populace doesn't seem to matter because they were um, enthroned for a while, although there was a time of quite a bit of conflict. They did lose out um, on some of their surrounding areas because of their internal strife. They weren't able to hold on to their foreign possessions, which shouldn't be a surprise. Okay, so... The Mediterranean period is kind of a term I made up because there's a series of like five different um, five different periods that I don't really think you need to know each one of them. Um, really, just after the third intermediate period, what happens is a series of rulers from outside comes in and takes over Egypt. And they um, give them new ideas about um, how to run the country how economies work, um, and also agricultural technology and things like that. So each one kind of gave a new influx of uh, thought and ideas to Egypt. So um, we have the Persians coming in in the 500s BCE, and then we have Alexander the Great and the Greeks coming in in the 300s BCE. Um, and the Greeks pretty much ruled, um, or Greeks, uh, descendants of Greeks ruled um, and even um, like Cleopatra would have spoken Greek as her main language because she was descended from Greeks um, rather than local e Egyptians. Because well, they had married in, so there was some mixing. But uh, she spoke Greek. She was actually famous for being one of the first Egyptian rulers who could speak Egyptian. <laughs> like they, they didn't even speak Egyptian. Anyway, um, um, and she was part of the Ptolemaic, like as in Ptolemy. Ptolemy was the governor uh, who was put in charge after the Greeks left. Um, and Ptolemy actually introduced a lot of innovations, like the Greeks brought in fiat currency, right, coins and things like that. Until that time period, they had been on a more of a barter-based system or a system that saw equivalents in grain or something like that. They brought in actual coins, which the Egyptians quickly uh, made into their own coins rather than use these foreign coins because they don't like to use foreign things. Um, they would, uh, Ptolemy uh, built a canal to the Red Sea from the Mediterranean, which is kind of a big deal. Um, and they introduced other innovations like the, the quern, which is basically a, uh, a grinder for grain, so you didn't have to grind grain by hand. You could use this big mill, basically a millstone. Doesn't sound like a lot, but if it saves hours of every woman's, um, if it would take a woman an hour to grind all the grain for bread for a day, and then they bring in this quern and you can do it in 10 minutes. If you multiply that by all the women in the country, which is basically how many people were grinding grain every day, that makes a huge saving. So it is a big deal. Um, the Ptolemies were rulers of um, Egypt until the Roman era when they became puppets. Um, and then eventually uh, they were uh, overrun or um, the Arab invasions uh, basically took us into the modern era and worked about them. Um, as they became more internationalized, they stopped or they started importing a lot of, um, so here's the Persian Empire, Greek coins. And so um, 
you can see here, this is an Egyptian mummy, but obviously it, doesn't, it looks more Roman or Greek, right? Um, as they became more exposed to international things, art, thought, ideas, they started adopting more and more of them. And you can even see that in their burial practice, where this is like a nice example of an Egyptian burial with uh, a very international sort of style. Um, yeah, not going to talk. Okay. Uh, Alexander the Great. Um, not that we're going to have much time to talk about Alexander the Great, who uh, conquered basically the largest empire until the Romans, uh, but he went all the way through um, the Middle East, all the way to India, down to the Indus River, and then back, um, and also took over Egypt um, and left his uh, governor behind, Ptolemy. Um, hmm. Alexander the Great. Here we go, Alexander the Great. Okay. Um, and then eventually the Romans came and conquered Egypt. Um, so like I said, a lot of the later pharaohs were actually Greeks uh, on, the, on the Egyptian throne. Here's the Ptolemaic Empire. Okay. Um, <laughs> fiat currency, Greek coins come in. See, I could have just showed you all this. And then, of course, we have the very famous Cleopatra um, and Mark Antony being bit or committing suicide by being bit by a snake. Um, how much of that is actually true? I mean, it's so well reported, but it's also so, so legendary, it's hard to say exactly what happened. Um, but basically, there's a lot of intrigue back and forth. Um, Cleopatra was a vassal of Rome. Uh, reportedly, she bore um, Julius Caesar's son, uh, while his own wife couldn't. Um, she tried to get him recognized as a real, legitimate heir. Did not happen. So Mark Antony, who was a mm, former aide of Caesar, uh, when he got into a civil war after Caesar was killed uh, with Octavian, who was Caesar's heir, uh, Mark Antony came down and fled to Egypt and took up with Cleopatra. They both died. Um, like, how much of that is exactly how things happened, or if this is a, a true depiction of how she died, I, it's hard to say. It doesn't actually really matter other than she's dead. Like, that's, that's what, what matters. Uh, here's another uh, Greco-inspired uh, mummy. Okay. So that's really the end of Egypt in terms of history. So let's talk a little bit about its culture. And remember, this culture has been is around for 3,000 years in more or less a similar fashion. Yes, there are innovations in farming, in their economy, in their society. Absolutely, things change over time. I don't mean to give you the idea that they're the same for 3,000 years. No. However, we are looking at a time depth that is unrivaled by really any other culture we've looked at. So when I'm talking about agriculture, it's kind of a Reader's Digest version of the, the highlights of their agriculture over the 3,000 years. And the general mainstays, not the, I'm not going to go into the change, like how is agriculture in the old kingdom versus the new kingdom? I'm not going to go into that just because, you know, time and time and things. All right. So um, Egypt had really productive farms. Um, they seem to be as productive or more productive than equal-sized farms in Rome or Mesopotamia. 
But on the other hand, they had a much smaller area than Rome or uh, Mesopotamia. You can see here these productive fields where they're growing wheat or something. And then at the edge of where irrigation stops, and I've pointed this out twice now, uh, you can see where the desert starts. And this is a constant battle between human beings and the forces of nature where they are constantly pushing back against, because if they didn't uh, keep this line up, uh, the, uh, I almost said snow, the sand would blow over and uh, quickly their fields would become dune covered. So they have to constantly be keeping the sand at bay. Um, all of this is irrigated by canals and reservoirs. Uh, so it's very labor intensive because they don't have as much land as one might want. Um, they had a finite amount of land, so they had to use it very productively. And usually there's an inverse relationship between uh, different types of agriculture. So we have um, space on this side. So lots or little, lots. And this is labor for agriculture. And we have um, little labor and lots of labor. As you get more land, you usually use less labor. As you get less land, you usually use more labor. So it's an inverse relationship. The less land you have to farm on, the more labor-intensive practices you're likely to take up. Think about, we haven't met them yet, but the ancient Inca uh, had many terraces because they only had so much flat land. So what they do, they put in a lot of labor and built more flat land um, just to get a little more time. Same thing with the Egyptians. Because they only had this narrow strip that was irrigatable next to the Nile, they had to put in a lot more physical labor as opposed to, say, the Romans uh, who had vast tracts of lands that they could, you know, they just had to clear the forest, which is still a lot of work, but plow them and they could depend on rain and things like that. They didn't need uh, to be as labor intensive. They could be more extensive in their area. Um, Egypt had a really neat system. Uh, unlike the Mesopotamians who use canals, to irrigate their fields, they actually just used reservoirs. And so how this worked was, um, if this is the Nile, um, and here's a field, they would build dikes around the field. And then as the level of the Nile rose, they would open a gate, the water would flow in, they would close the gate, and then uh, all the sediment and the nutrients from Ethiopia and upstream would settle out onto the field. Then they would open a lower gate. All the water would flow out. They would then close the gate, and they would have their field irrigated, ready to go. And they could do that at a couple different times. They could also irrigate from canals that went between the fields, but they would that would re be at Nile level, and they would use something called a shaduf. which is what this guy here has. It's basically a teeter-totter. On one side, you have a weight. On the other side, you have a bucket. You dip that bucket in the water. The weight pulls it back up. You tip it over. It saves you from having to uh, lift it up. Instead, you can pull down, which is a much more comfortable uh, 
way to work your back. And they would make series of shadoof. I don't know what the plural of shadoofs is. I asked an Egyptian friend of mine who's an Egyptologist, what's the plural of shadoof? She's like, I have no idea, shadoof. She's from Egypt. She's not like American that works. She's like Egyptian. I don't know. Anyway, um, and so they could still irrigate if they needed to, if it dried out a bit. The interesting thing is um, if you do that over and over, now let's look at it from the side. If here's your field and here's the Nile, and you know when it floods, it's above. When it's above the, the uh, ground level, well, over years, you're going to build up all that sediment. And eventually, you get higher than the flood. So what do you do? Well, if the Nile's higher over here, you build like a canal that will bring it and dump it in. And eventually, they have really complex canal systems because their fields got built up so high, which is kind of interesting. It's, it's like the opposite of erosion, which is kind of fun. Okay. But now you can see perhaps why the Egyptian flood is so important. If it didn't flood enough, you couldn't water your fields. You couldn't leach the salt out. You couldn't um, have all that good nutrients uh, in your field. So very important. After they were flooded, um, they planted seeds and they trampled them by uh, letting sheep run across the field. And the sheep's little feet boop, 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 pushed all the seeds into the ground. Um, and then usually over the winter, uh, things would grow. And then um, th things would be harvested, uh, usually working together as a community. And then in the winter, or excuse me, in the summer, they would let the ground dry so much that it would crack, like you see in deserts. And that would break up the soil. It, um, it would uh, aerate it. And it would also let um, different uh, salts and things leach out of it. They also used uh, pretty extensive home gardens. Um, here's a artist recreation of a fairly well-off house with uh, walls and things like that. But they would have started out with orchards, but they will, would have also grown all kinds of fruits and vegetables close at hand, um, kind of your uh, things that you would usually get in the produce department uh, of the grocery store. They would grow at home. Much of the food grown was for um, home production. Uh, although after the Greek period, they started exporting a lot of grain to Europe uh, and the Middle East as they were considered colonies. Uh, they grew all kinds of, I mean, sounds pretty good, uh, cucumbers, onions, lettuce, garlic, melons, herbs. Um, a lot of the legumes, uh, barley, beans, lentils, and chickpeas. Um, and then later on, they started importing more Mediterranean foods like uh, uh, olives and pears and peaches and things like that. They uh, also grew grapes uh, to make wine, but that was much more expensive than beer, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Um, surprisingly, fish uh, seemed to be the main protein source rather than animals. Um, animals were used for milk and meat. Uh, and farming, uh, and it seems like fish were more of a, of a, a meal. Uh, but the big mainstays of the diet were both beer and bread. And bakers and brewers were very important uh, in the functioning economy. Uh, they were able to turn a lot of that grain into digestible carbohydrates. Um, and most of your caloric intake would have been bread or beer or both. Um, the bread probably would have been spiced, or you would have added a little bit to it, kind of like a, they'd make like a doughy pizza with a lot more bread 
than pizza toppings. Um, and that was pretty common uh, Egyptian food for the normal, normal everyday folks. Uh, wine was like 10 times more expensive than beer, so only elites were able to drink it. Um, and they had a variety of beers, uh, from light to dark beer, um, and a couple iron beer and black beer and all kinds of different varieties. Uh, there's actually a company in the United States that has tried to reenact or recreate Egyptian beers. It's called Dogfish Head. I think they just started distributing to Wisconsin. So uh, you can have an, uh, they, they do all kinds of archaeological brews, like a Midas's Touch. And then there's a Aztec-related one, I think. Uh, there's a couple different that they make. I, I should know, but I don't. One kind of uh, related point to agriculture is that to do this sort of thing, you didn't do it alone. It wasn't just your family. It was the whole community. And some people have argued, just like in Mesopotamia, that the community organization necessary to build canals and build these large dike systems and to organize everything, that required, I, okay, let's say, there's two ways to look at it. It certainly involved the state. That's a fact. Now, did the state rise out of the organization necessary to create this system? Or, state rise out of the organization, or did the state come in and take over the organization that was already existing? So was it the state creating it, or was the state taking it over? It's hard to say. Um, but there was certainly a community organization or communities that got organized to make these things together, and that helped uh, work hand in glove later on with the government and the local authorities who would run it. Hard to say which came first. Um, certainly one of them did, but we don't know. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about uh, agriculture when I talk about taxes here in a minute. All right. So the state dominated the economy. Um, it wasn't, it was, pro, it was a more organized and uh, more top-down than many other ancient organizations or uh, states. Um, the Romans, I think, were more, perhaps more top-down, but they were later. The Egyptians were, when they started out, they were absolutely the most organized, bureaucratic um, state in the world. Um, by the time they ended, or by the time we stopped talking about them, there were many states that were being fairly organized in their economies, uh, organized by the state, I mean. But the Egyptians were first, and they did it quite well. Um, they, let's see, where's my fiat currency? Okay. Um, all right, I'm going to talk about taxes, yeah. So, um, they used corvée labor early on. Remember corvée labor uh, or um, a labor tax? Uh, corvée labor is that free month you have uh, when it's not planting season or harvest season to work on the pyramids or wherever. Um, that was used for quite a long time. Uh, but they also collected taxes. And the way they um, collected them was by collecting grain. And they instead of having like a flat tax or like we take 10% or we take you know, a certain amount depending on how much land you have or something like that, what they did is they used a nilometer. Oh, 
nilometer measures the maximum amount of uh, of uh, of flood of the of the Nile that year. And there's a sweet spot. If you get it too high, if the Nile's too high, it washes out your dikes, it overtops your dikes and washes out all your subsoil or all your topsoil, and that's bad. If you don't get enough, you can't properly irrigate. So there's a sweet spot. And so the nilometer is basically, the Nile would have been, it's dry now, but it would have been let into this area and it would have gone up. And they could have measured exactly where the Nile topped out. And you know they'd have basically a measuring stick. And this would be like the best. This would be okay. This would be bad. This would be okay. And this would be bad. And basically, based on, they didn't use smiley faces or Egyptian equivalents. Um, I'm just doing that for fun. Um, the closer it came to the optimal Nile depth, the more taxes they'd expect that year because they'd expect you to have grown more food. Right, so um, if there's too high of a flood, they would reduce tax amount. If there was too little of a flood, they would reduce the tax amount. Um, but they would come on harvest time and say, all right, this is a X year, good or bad or whatever. Um, so we need to actually take account of your grain. So here we have a scene of Egyptian tax keepers or tax collectors, and they're actually measuring the size of people's fields with this rope here. They're measuring the fields. And then when it's threshed and they're getting the grain out of the husk, they're actually scribes there recording how much they're, they're growing. Um, and they'll take it right then and say, all right, 10%, let's go. And they'll take it as they're harvesting it. Uh, so they know what to expect from each different farm and they would come collect their tax. So yeah, I mean, even though they didn't have fiat currency early on, they certainly uh, we're able to get a lot done through uh, harvesting, uh, through uh, taxes of things themselves, and also through the corvée labor. Here is an Egyptian depiction of moving one of these. Now, obviously, there's a bit of an uh, artistic license here. You know, obviously, they wouldn't walk on floating beams or something. This is, you know, rows side by side, but this is how they're depicting them, uh, all tied together to the front of this. And you can see they're putting down oil on this large sledge, and they are moving. This guy's clapping. I want that job. Let's go, pull together. Um, they're moving this large statue uh, across uh, the land, which is pretty cool. So that would be a corvée labor job uh, done by people instead of paying taxes in some years. Hooray. Um, like I said, they didn't get fiat currency until the Greeks uh, came along, or the, yeah, it was the Greeks. Um, and they quickly took Greek coins and made their own coins because, like I said, they, they would take ideas from outside, but they would quickly make them their own and adapt them rather than uh, simply just adopt them wholesale. This uh, made things a lot easier for keeping, I mean, it's a lot easier to keep a pile of coins than a giant granary of grain. Um, it also allowed them to trade outside of the, uh, outside of the kingdom. They also were very lucky, unlike the uh, excuse me, Mesopotamians, who remember I said they could sail down river really easily, but then they basically had to dismantle the, uh, the ship because they couldn't get it back upstream. The Nile predominantly has a wind blowing from north to south, 
against the stream. So all you had to do to go from the mouth of the river or from Memphis to Thebes is hoist your sail, and it would blow you right up the, um, right up the river. And then obviously when you were coming down river, all you had to do is put down your sail and go with the flow. Lucky. I mean, it's not like they could plan that. It's just a happenstance of nature uh, for them, and it worked out really well. And so they primarily moved uh, things on ships in the Nile. Unfortunately, they didn't have many trees, so they would have to import uh, cypress and cedars and things from Lebanon and other uh, Mediterranean basin partners uh, because they just didn't have very big trees. And so they would make boats out of reeds and other things, but they still needed wood for the masts. Lucky for them. <coughs> if they moved anything overland, they used donkeys. Oddly enough, they didn't want to use, uh, it took a long time for them to adopt, uh, what do you call them, um, camels. Because camels look like the Egyptian god Seth, and so it would be like, uh, I guess there's not really an image of, it would be like if we had an animal shaped like, if you're a Christian person, an animal that's shaped like a cross, or an animal that looks a lot like Jesus or something like that, I don't know. So you wouldn't want to use that animal for like loading up with packs and making it carry stuff. That would be the equivalent, because they had the god Seth that looks like a camel, so they didn't want to use the camels. Not to mention the fact that <coughs> the Nile can be kind of a swampy, wet, mucky place. <coughs> Excuse me. And camels don't do very well in that. Their feet can actually actually rot and things like that. So um, it's much better to use donkeys. They can go on the narrow paths that flank the Nile a lot better than donkeys or than, than camels. <coughs> I don't know what I have in my throat. Mm. The Egyptian ethos uh, emphasized self-sufficiency. Um, they like to say that they were completely self-sufficient. They could get along without the outside world. Thank you very much. Um, if everyone else in the world died, they'd be just fine with that. Um, it's a little unfair, though, because they had always used long-distance trade and international commerce to bring all kinds of fun, exciting things in um, to their land that they didn't have. I mentioned trees um, to build buildings and to build ships. They needed to import wood. Um, Elites imported wine and oil, and then later on they exported them. Um, they imported minerals and exported minerals. Um, I've said, I think, a couple of times that uh, silver was more valuable in Egypt because silver was not available locally. They could mine gold, but silver had to be brought in, therefore it made it more um, valuable. Um, and I've mentioned multiple times that the state really dominated trade, and this was true with long-distance trade. Most of the people who were doing trade with foreign bodies um, were state-sanctioned merchants. A normal, everyday Egyptian would probably never leave the valley. It was only these long-distance merchants who had license from the state to go abroad and do this. Um, so yeah, it was pretty... Um, Unusual, very uh, inward-focused society. We talked briefly about natural disasters. Um, there were 
earthquakes. It's in a slightly seismic zone. Um, rainstorms doesn't doesn't sound like much, but when you're in a country that almost never gets a rain, a rainstorm can wreak havoc on your um, infrastructure. I mean, just you know, if you if you garden or if you work outside and you leave your stuff out, never fails. You're going to get rained on, right? Exactly when you don't want to get rained on when you're gone at the store or something. Uh, imagine living in a place that never rained. Uh, you could build houses out of mud bricks. You could leave stuff laying about. You could basically never have to prepare for a rain, and then without you know uh, the meteorologic meteorological service to tell you there's rain coming, you could get surprised. And there was actually a major rainstorm that destroyed the royal palace at one point. Tidal waves. Uh, there's one specifically in history that was recorded where when Thera, excuse me, when Thera um, erupted uh, and may have ruined Crete, it uh, caused a tidal wave. And before the tidal wave came, the water receded back from the shore and all these fish were flopping about. I think I've told this story before where everyone runs out to pick up the fish and then all of a sudden the tidal wave comes in and kills thousands of people. Pretty well historically recorded. Um, so, you know, there are some things that could happen, uh, but the biggest two natural disasters that the Egyptians had to deal with were Nile fluctuations, which I've already covered. Um, too much or too little uh, annual flood could spell disaster for the agriculturally based society. And then there was uh, all kinds of fun diseases, and I'm going to spell out one of them, which is um, which I've mentioned before, uh, but couldn't remember the name of. It's schisto, S C H I S T, uh, osomiasis. Schistosomiasis is a parasitic uh, thing that lives in snails and people. And uh, it's exchanged when people uh, ingest water that has its eggs. It grows in your bladder, and then you pee it out uh, into the Nile or wherever, where it then lives in snails and does the same life cycle. And the levels of, and it causes things like nausea, fatigue, weakness. But you also have to remember this is you know pre-industrial uh, medicine, so people were probably feeling fatigued, nauseous, and just generally sick for all kinds of reasons, not just this one. Um, but there would be waves of this, and it would follow behind the Nile. Wetter periods would have more, drier periods would have less. And I've mentioned now that they have the Aswan Dam, and they have a very level, constant amount of water, that people are constantly getting this. Uh, there is no refractionary period where the natural environment reduces the amount of it. It's just like mosquitoes, right? That's the example I was bringing up earlier. Um, people had tuberculosis. Uh, a lot of people actually, I think the number was like one in five, some ridiculous number, high number of people had tuberculosis, which is almost unknown for us today. Uh, but up until 100 years ago, people were dying of tuberculosis, also called consumption, which it, in late stages, you'd be coughing up blood until you died. Lovely. Uh, you'd be really uh, white, like pasty white. Uh, you'd lose a lot of um, energy, and you'd eventually, yeah, you'd just die. Uh, but most people in Egypt didn't die of tuberculosis because they died of other things before. It, it can live in your body for like 20 years before you get sick. So 
Uh, most, a lot of people had tuberculosis. Not many people died of it because most people just die of stuff in general. Um, there are a lot of accidents and injuries because, you know, uh, just like farming uh, or construction today, there, was, there were accidents. Um, and then there were other things like um, uh, sand pneumocosis, which is uh, basically like coal miners have black lung. Egyptians had sand lung, basically. They would breathe in so much dust and sand that it would, um, silica would deposit in their lungs and it would cause them um, breathing trouble. And they also had really bad worn down teeth because sand and dust were everywhere and it would blow into the bread and other food. And so you'd be eating a lot of grit. And so Egyptians often had very, very worn down teeth, much more so than other um, comparable societies. So they're super fun. <laughs> All right, so let's get to the main sort of topic that, no, uh, it's 2.17, so we will um, not start society. We'll start society on Monday. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.